Sono Maurizio Di Paolo Emilio, editor di Power Electronics News. Direttamente dall'Italia stai ascoltando E-Times on Air. And I'm Brian Santo, E-Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to your briefing for the week ending December 6th. In this episode, you might think that if an automaker is developing the technology for autonomous driving, then creating the technology for assisted driving, a seemingly less ambitious goal, would practically be a gimme. Think again. Also, you've heard about Moore's Law coming to an end. That's because the industry is in fact getting very close to reaching the physical performance limits of silicon. But there is ample opportunity to keep improving electronics, and one way that will be possible is by using semiconductors other than silicon. We'll be talking about one of those. And the role that universities play in new technology development is pretty well established, or at least it was until artificial intelligence came along. AI is going to be a challenge for academic researchers for several reasons. Furthermore, when AI is set to do some of the actual development work, that threatens to have some profound ramifications. What if no one can identify where this IP originally came from and you only find out after the fact that you're screwed? You know, I think that that is something that has not been talked about a lot and I get this feeling that within the next couple of years, we are going to run into major, major IP problems that is probably going to blow the Digital Millennium Copyright Act out of the water. We'll get back to that later in the podcast. As of last spring, German carmaker Demmler AG had plans to put 10,000 robo-taxis on the streets by 2021. Six short months later, just a few weeks ago, Demmler said that is not going to happen. Basically, the company acknowledged what we've been reporting for months. It is really, really difficult to make an autonomous vehicle that is safe, especially for city driving, and no one is close yet. Second, developing autonomous driving technology is incredibly expensive, and with global overall auto sales dropping in 2019, Demmler, like most of its competitors, is obliged to be extrajudicious with its finances. Under such circumstances, technologies unlikely to pay off in the short term naturally get scaled back. Demmler is just another in a long line of auto manufacturers postponing the commercial introduction of autonomous driving technology. But does that mean they're backing off from developing technology for assisted driving too? After all, they're the same set of technologies. EE Times international editor Junko Yoshida recently wrote a story about the popular assumption that there's a direct relationship between the two technology development thrusts for autonomous driving and for assisted driving. That assumption is apparently wrong, which doesn't seem to make intuitive sense. So I asked her, aren't the basic technologies for autonomous vehicles AVs, and for assisted driving, ADAS, essentially the same. The basic building blocks uh, of autonomous vehicle and ADAS are similar, but I wouldn't say the same. Um, Mm. Expectation is that autonomous vehicle is harder because uh, the sensor suites, as you mentioned, 
probably need to be more robust or more granular. Uh, there'll be more sensors added compared mm -hmm. to sensors used for ADAS, right? So that's one. But the basic building blocks are similar. And also, as the architecture of the car is concerned, you know, the fact is that you have to do the sensor fusion, you need to guide the vehicle in one way or other. So the companies like Tesla coming in say that we got autopilot. Now we have a new chip inside that will be capable of transitioning to eventually level four. You know, that mm -hmm. makes people, you know, general public thinks, that, oh, okay, so this is going to go into the, um, from uh, current, current uh, autopilot or ADAS to the autonomous vehicle. And I think that's a fallacy. Mm. So there's no linear path from assisted to autonomous. Well, Tesla yet. wants to say that's true. And many technologists and engineers working in the automotive industry, they also thought that single path might be mm. possible, right? Because as you said, that basic building blocks are similar. But I think it turns out there are two things involved. One is that scaling down from autonomous vehicle to ADAS is not possible because the cost structure for ADAS has to be much cheaper. Now, mm. scaling up from auto ADAS to AV is also more traumatic because, as you and I discussed in the previous uh, shows, that um, the responsibility uh, of the uh, whom to blame when ADAS or AV meets an accident is going to be a very different scenario. If, if it's ADAS, car makers can blame drivers or somebody else's fault. While if it is autonomous vehicle who meets an accident, it is the car company who designed the autonomous vehicle will be blamed, right? Mm. So I think the traditional car companies are a lot more cautious when they are dealing with the designing of autonomous vehicles. Well, design is actually an interesting aspect of this. You have very separate end goals with assisted driving. You're trying to make the, the human a better driver. And autonomous, you're trying to make the vehicle itself drive safely and responsibly. And a lot of the auto manufacturers are finding out that the two goals require separate teams yep. to right. So as it as it stands from a design standpoint, these are they're they're actually two separate manufacturing thrusts, development thrusts for a lot of these exactly. guys. Exactly. Right? As of now, it seems like they have been working with the two separate teams uh, out of necessity. And, mm. But, you know, but there is always hope that, uh, well, maybe if we have one single platform that can grow into the AV, you know, that's in, in theory that works, right? In theory, that mm -hmm. would be an ideal situation. You stick to this platform and then this platform will be able to add more sensors or more processing powers. Eventually, it becomes AV. But I think, as I said before, I think that's more of an aspirational goal. I don't mm. think that's a reality. But at the same time, I think I, I need to mention that uh, um, part of the reason why we are beginning to see a lot of news about car companies scaling back or pulling back from AV development is a lot to do with the state of the 
financial state that the uh, auto companies uh, are today, right? They're not making right. money and uh, the volume is going down. And uh, ADAS could be the answer, but not AV. Right, right. So um, does this argument uh, support uh, the arguments of the newer car companies, the Teslas, the Bedans, their argument is we're creating a vehicle from scratch, from the ground up that's systematically prepared to go from assisted to autonomous. The flip side of the argument might be the old traditional manufacturers are large, have the resources and say, we're big enough to be able to to handle the transition one way or another. Uh, do you have any feel for whether either of those approaches is uh, more likely to meet success than the other? Well, it is um, easier narrative, you know, for uh, the, uh, the narrative. Yeah, narrative. <laughs> it's not the fact, but it's a narrative that for <laughs> companies, uh, new companies come out, say that we do everything from scratch. That's attractive. You know, that sounds really good. But but do those new companies actually take care of all the safety issues that autonomous, uh, well, the, uh, the auto industry has already faced in the past. I mean, have they learned the lessons? Have they, are they really prepared to handle all the safety issues? That's a big question, right? Because they haven't done it before. They probably don't know how hard it is. Meanwhile, you know, the traditional car companies, yes, they're slow and they have a lot of legacy system to deal with. But I think in the end, I think they will figure it out. But it might take time and then they might do it right away. Old age and experience trumps youth and enthusiasm. <laughs> it's just like a talking about us, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, thanks, Joko. <laughs> okay. A final note on Demler's plans. The company did say it is putting development of autonomous taxis on the back burner, but it is not abandoning autonomous driving entirely. The company is continuing to develop technology for autonomous long-haul trucking. Highway driving is one of the easier environments for autonomous vehicles. Silicon is plentiful, cheap, and relatively easy to work with. For well over half a century, the overwhelming majority of integrated circuits were made using silicon. That's why the terms silicon and integrated circuit have become nearly synonymous. But they're not. Synonymous, that is. There are any number of other semiconductors. The most commonly used are compound materials. They include gallium arsenide, silicon germanium, and indium phosphide. There are two compound semiconductors in particular that have performance characteristics that are very attractive for power electronics. One is gallium nitride, GAN, and the other is silicon carbide, or SIC. Because silicon is so dominant, gallium nitride and silicon carbide are exotic in comparison, but they're growing in importance and there's a scramble in some corners of the industry to nail down both expertise and manufacturing capacity. Maurizio De Paolo Emilio is the editor of our sister publication, Power Electronics News, and he contributes regularly to EE Times. That was Maurizio introducing this week's podcast. We invited him on to talk about some of the recent developments regarding silicon carbide. Here he is with Junko Yoshida. I feel like over the last few weeks alone, we've seen a couple of pretty big announcements in the field of silicon carbide. 
right? Yeah. Um, right. One recent example is the Cree and SD microelectronics. This is something about expanding an existing uh, multi-year uh, silicon carbide wafer supply agreement. Another one was the, uh, I think that's, this is a story you wrote, um, the agreement between Soytech and Applied Materials. These two companies have just formed a joint development program for next generation silicon carbide substrates for power devices, right? So, yeah. so I, I feel like we're suddenly in the middle of, uh, you know, not a gold rush, but the silicon carbide rush. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. what has changed in the market? Uh, tell me, take me from the top. Yeah. What changed the market? So the market uh, is changing a lot, in particular the power market. And uh, SIC is uh, one of the semiconductor materials that find space in this market. This uh, will be not only from energy or power point of view, because uh, we have a strong demand for new high-performance devices in industrial, but also in the consumer market. In fact, we can find uh, a lot of devices uh, such as uh, high power, high voltage uh, power supplies and UPS and power drive and power and motor drivers that uh, consume a good value of, uh, of the power. An increase in efficiency in power devices can reduce the cost of the company. In this way, uh, we can find a lot of collaboration, uh, for example, Soitec, but also uh, ST Microelectronics uh, with, uh, with degree, to, uh, to define a good competition in this, uh, in this market. So uh, we, can, uh, we can find uh, several uh, factors that are driving this, uh, this market. So one is the rising global energy problems and the need to use energy uh, more wisely and efficiently. The second is connected to the advent of IoT and with a new uh, application and new services. In, in fact, we speak about smart factory because factories are becoming uh, more intelligent right. with, new, with new devices to achieve greater autonomy, efficiency, reliability and safety. And this way we can find the silicon carbide. So the advantage of uh, using silicon carbide in power devices the, the idea has been for a long time, and yet it feels to me that it's only recent that this became uh, more of a mainstream. So tell me about the uh, advantages and disadvantages of using silicon carbide. So silicon uh, carbide uh, uh, has a lot of advantages. So a good benefit of silicon carbide is the reduction uh, in energy loss in the form of heat. Uh, this uh, saving uh, will be translated into more efficient power devices. So, in general, we can define the three primary advantages over, uh, over silicon. Okay. Higher critical breakdown field that is important to avoid the break of the component and work in high voltage. Uh, high thermal conductivity. The, that means the material is superior in conducting heat more efficiently uh, than silicon, obviously and a, wind, a wider band gap. Uh, si uh, silicon carbide has a, a wide band gap of three electron volts and is uh, mm -hmm. important uh, to, for high voltage application. Band gap is, uh, is an energy range uh, where no electron states can exist. It uh, usually refers to the energy difference between the top of uh, valence band at the bottom ah. of the conduction band in insulators and the semiconductors. 
So these are the three obvious advantages, yeah, right? Yeah. So what's the weakness of silicon carbide then? First of all, is the cost. Uh, mm. Then uh, silicon carbide is not available as a natural mineral and needs several techniques to produce uh, the, the components. So high uh, manufacturing cost is, uh, in fact, uh, is a problem to obtain large wafers of zinc with uh, less uh, defects and the lack of right uh, process. And, yep. But this is... This is a work in progress because we have a new R&D program, uh, just uh, Soitec, to uh, manufacture new substrate, as uh, I, told, uh, I told before. Right. Moreover, moreover uh, electrical uh, layout is, uh, is a problem. We should, uh, we should do a, a good connection between chemistry and microelectronics point of view because contacts and passive components should handle extreme condition with the reliability in order to keep SIG function active in whole applications such as uh, uh, data center, for example, where thermal performance is, is more important. Tell me that how far are we in terms of making that the connectivity between the, uh, you're talking about the layout, right? The combination of SIG and regular semiconductors. How far are we today? Are we there yet? So, um, I think that uh, mm, the problem uh, is, uh, uh, is to have uh, a good uh, adoption of the SIC devices and uh, ah. uh, needs a lot of job uh, for, uh, for that. Ah. For the future, we should uh, understand better the uh, circuit layout to, to do perfect components. But uh, it's the most important to optimize the uh, manufacture, manufacturing processes to realize substrate. This is a complicated process. Um, right, so this is the primary challenge that yeah, we need to solve. Yeah, this is the primary yeah. cha challenge for, uh, uh, for that, yes. In fact, Soitec did um, an agreement with applied materials to, to increase uh, the, the production because uh, the demand for sick uh, uh, devices uh, is increasing uh, exponentially. Yeah. So yeah. The, the process uh, to realize sick uh, components is very complicated. And just to uh, turning a single uh, wafer in other sick uh, wafer, for example. Right. Did they give you any timeline when they are going to uh, make that possible? This development, the multi-layer uh, six substrates that they talked about? Uh, about this process uh, for uh, yeah. substrate six. Um, yeah. So um, the process is uh, a chemistry, um, yeah. total chemistry. Uh, the first of all, uh, you should uh, select the, the material uh, yeah. and uh, uh, then you should put together with a dope uh, process. Uh, doping, right. Doping. Uh, silicon yeah. uh, carbide, uh, in fact, consists of pure silicon and pure carbon. And then you can dope uh, silicon with uh, so nitrogen or phosphorus to form uh, N-type, in this case, semiconductor or P-type yeah. with other, other, uh, other things. Right. Just come back to Soitec uh, program. For example, the, the, the process that uh, they uh, use uh, as the goal, obviously, to improve the performance and uh, availability of SIC devices uh, mm -hmm. consists of turning a single high-quality SIC wafer into multiple high-quality SIC wafer. And that is complicated and needs cost. Uh, 
and right. uh, it's, it's important to to improve the efficiency of uh, uh, this uh, manufacturing. Right. So this is a more or less a, a R and D project. I mean, yeah. do they give you a timeline when this is going to happen? Mm, I don't know, but I think that uh, just in the next uh, three four years, uh, electrical vehicles will be. Uh, very common, I think, and uh, just for that need to have uh, uh, efficient power devices uh, right. by, by using SIC. And uh, R&D is most important to define new substrates and new yep. efficient power devices uh, with SIC. Okay, very good. So the future is bright for SIC. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right. Thanks, Maurizio. Thanks, Junko. Maurizio's article on the promise of silicon carbide and the challenges in meeting that promise is on the EE Times website. It's called New Silicon Carbide Substrates Boost Power Devices. For those of you coming to this podcast from Blueberry, iTunes, Spotify, or elsewhere, we post a full transcript of our podcasts every week on eetimes.com. The page with the transcript of each podcast includes links to the stories we refer to, along with related stories. EE Times and our sister publications publish occasional special projects. These are in-depth reports that examine a particular aspect of the electronics industry from multiple angles. Our most recent special report is on artificial intelligence and engineering education. Two of the major contributors to this set of stories are EE Times editor George Leopold and Loring Werbel, who had been on the staff for a very long time and who still contributes to the magazine. They reported that AI and engineering education can be a fitful match. To explain why, I asked Loring what the typical relationship between industry and academia had been. So, Lauren, first what I want to do is have you explain what the typical process is, the typical uh, loop and relationship uh, between industry and academia when a new technology has been developed. Well, you know, I think for at least uh, six or seven decades since the end of World War II, you had both the compute industry itself and then, uh, you know, Internet development organized through federal agencies uh, like uh, DARPA or just the Pentagon in general earlier on, um, always looking for uh, proving grounds uh, through academia. And from there, you had National Science Foundation and others in the civilian side of the street always looking to steer engineering and computer science development in certain directions. And um, I think that uh, there was a mutual benefit to be established throughout that period of time because the universities could kind of take that research in the direction they thought most uh, applicable. And uh, the federal government usually found that the universities could uh, determine what was necessary even better than the feds could. Um, what started to happen over time is that there became a process uh, inherent in both universities and in nonprofit corporations to not just throw money at a problem, but to uh, you know have 
quantifiable deliverables on a quarterly basis that if people were going to get more money, they had to show exactly what they were doing. And I think that became uh, the norm, say, in DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, IARPA, the Homeland Security ARPA and all these others to say, no, you, it, this isn't just free bucks that are shoveled into your face. You have to prove your quantifiables and show your deliverables. Right. So we have the feds uh, and to some extent industry working together saying, here are some contracts uh, for the development that you do. And there was also an element of once you have these research and development operations going on on campus, uh, you've got college students learning, uh, becoming somewhat expert in these disciplines and then moving into uh, positions at companies and in the government for that that uh, those agencies that oversee that technology. Uh, so it's not just the research and development, you're also developing expertise, right? Right. And I think that there was a certain amount of propaganda that started really uh, uh, pumping up around the turn of the millennium to say that um, the United States was falling behind in science and engineering and you know, there was a certain amount that that was true as compared to both, uh, you know, China and some of the European nations. But that uh, got the uh, cheerleader squad for STEM, you know, science and technology, engineering, you know, ki kinds of education that applied to both high school and college levels, that everything had to be oriented to STEM. Well, you know, and I know it's like testing at the high school level. Once something becomes a propaganda element, it's overemphasized, overdefined, and a lot of times it causes more trouble than it's worth. So now we come to artificial intelligence and uh, the, the the special project that uh, you and George and several of our other colleagues were involved with. And the issue there is that AI is so different uh, that uh, it e even the even the imperfect rules that we had before, uh, with uh, perhaps an overemphasis on STEM, may not apply. Um, is that uh, that that's where our premise is here, right? I think that um, one of the issues with AI is that the rules of what is definable or quantifiable are so different than anything the world has seen before in two ways. I think I mentioned at the start of one of the articles that there is no model for moving from machine language to higher level languages in software development as there used to be. There isn't a, um, you know, object-oriented type of modular language that exists above a higher level compiled language, we're, we're moving to an area where there is no underlying language anymore. And so uh, software development may uh, just kind of go the way of all saints. Um, then you have the other problem that the goals for defining what is an advancement in high level, you know, deep learning, are getting higher and harder and harder to find. When neural network simulation was taking place just on a single chip basis, then it became just a product of, uh, you know, semiconductor research. You saw a lot of work at Cal Poly and everything in both processors and analog. But after that, it became an issue of um, 
how we define trained and untrained learning for neural networks on a system level. And that's where all this problem of an undefinable result from a set of problems emerged. And uh, that was what drove all the bean counters at universities crazy, because really most neural network researchers couldn't explain what the hell they were doing. And as a practical matter, that makes it difficult for uh, industry and the government agencies that, that are looking for this R&D to define what the deliverables are. And it makes it hard for the universities, the university research operations, to say, um, you know, to actually deliver on what supposedly the demand might be. Is that correct? Well, there's a little bit of a difference in that I think that mathematicians and scientists have made very clear within DOD and the National Science Foundation and others that there is no such thing as an entirely definable set of human knowledge that, um, you know, it, there were a few engineers that responded to the original article saying, hey, are neural network researchers just lazy? Because I think that... Um, <laughs> Seriously, engineers want to believe that if you have defined all inputs and outputs and know the architecture fairly well, that you should be able to describe the target of what you're looking at in a in a way that can be understood even by the neophyte. But in the case of deep learning, it's kind of like mathematicians do, dealing with Kurt Gödel's uh, incompleteness theorem. People are used to saying that we don't know what this problem, we don't, there are a cer certain set of problems where we don't know if we can ever know the answer. We don't know, it was like that old, um, you know, Bush administration thing about we don't know what we don't know or whatever. Scientists and mathematicians are used to that. They're used to the idea that, you know, from quantum mechanics and everything, that you don't know the answer to all the problems. That drives engineers crazy, and it also drives academic bean counters crazy. Do they know what they don't know? I would say they're getting closer and closer to understanding how to define a vertical application for deep learning and what is going on inside the multi-layer neural network. The problem is they can't really explain that to the neophyte, and even they can't explain it to a lot of other neural network researchers who have deep knowledge of what those hidden layers are, because no one knows what what the neural network is trying to do within those hidden layers, so it becomes impossible to explain it to others. So what are the practical implications? Does this make it uh, harder for, uh, for academic organizations to, um, to create AI labs and, and do AI research and expect to get contracts uh, for what they can deliver? Does this make it more difficult for, uh, you know, to develop talent? Does that, you know, what, what's the practical, uh, you know, are there, are there practical ramifications for this new stuff that we haven't seen before? Sure. I think there's a kind of set of steps you have to follow. Um, 
Number one, I really like what the Allen Institute did with their green AI promotion, not so much just for the environmental aspects of it, although that can be important, but they said universities should stop trying to get involved with what you might call brute force AI, because you've always got the Amazons and the Facebooks and everybody that can just throw uh, citywide power supplies. We're talking about the power supply of a small city and compute resources toward solving a brute force problem. Instead, a university should look at how to best optimize an AI problem so that they can do so with low floating point operations and low uses of, you know, utility resources and compute resources. And um, <clears throat> number two, you should look at a problem where you're not trying to use a training set that uses every photograph ever taken of a human face on the planet or, you know, some something with an astonishingly large training set, which could get you into privacy problems and scaling problems. And uh, number three, try to define a problem where you minimize the area of deep learning where you say this is all a black box and mysterious magical stuff happens inside the black box that we can't describe. There will always be a black box of a certain size that cannot be described, but your financial bean counters within the university will appreciate it if you make the black box area as small as possible. When we start hearing about uh, um, artificial intelligence, neural networks, um, being able to program themselves. Um, I think we've heard uh, folks like Mark Cuban and a bunch of other people thinking, well, you know, AI is going to uh, undercut the need for programmers. Is that going to affect uh, how many people we need to educate and how we educate them? Well, yeah, first of all, there will always be humans necessary to set the parameters of what a deep learning platform should do and not do, because we've all heard about instances where uh, a Microsoft AI program went off and wrote poetry without being asked. And then in another instance, instance where that same Microsoft platform started making very racist comments and with as you know politically correct as the universities are these days you want to be sure make sure you set the parameters so your ai platform doesn't turn into a screaming racist or a surrealist poet who no one can understand and both of those possibilities are very real i mean this is not just a joke this is a real thing so you know, then it sounds like the sorcerer's apprentice because you got a bunch of humans trying to uh, tell a deep learning platform what it can do. And the deep learning platform is going to say, ha ha, silly humans, I can get beyond that. So, George, we haven't given you a chance to chime in well, here. What do you? Yeah, well, I can sum up my take on, on what's happening at the uh, community college level with, with the following quote, which I think plays into what, what Loring is, was talking about who will repair the robots when they break down. So that's, that's what's uh, happening at the community college level where they're, you know, uh, technical training and certification. And, you know, if you get certified, then you get promoted and you get a job. And maybe you can get into, in the case of our story, the California state system, although the people we talked to said they get 100,000 applications for 10,000 slots in the California university system, and that's not even counting Berkeley. 
So it's very different, but they're in the process of, you know, trying to uh, meet industry halfway in terms of what are the skills you need. That's what we'll teach. You got to meet us halfway. You got to provide mentors and so forth. And, you know, so they're, they're wrestling with these problems at sort of a lower level, but I think just as important. Loring, what about intellectual property? If you're getting federal funding and you come up with something at the university level, any ideas as to who gets to keep the intellectual property? Because that's a big deal at universities now. What if no one can identify where this IP originally came from and you only Mm. find out after the fact that you're screwed? You know, I think that that is something that has not been talked about a lot. And I get this feeling that within the next couple of years, we are going to run into major, major IP problems that is probably going to blow the Digital Millennium Copyright Act out of the water, that DMCA will be seen as totally useless for defining intellectual property rights on any kind of trademark or copyright basis. And that has yet to happen, and I think it's going to. And now it's time for Poetry Corner. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler long I stood. Wait, what? Oh, right. Sorry. Uh, Poetry Corner is for the other podcast. Okay, I got it now. Seriously, here we go. And now it's time to enter the Wayback Machine to revisit some of the great moments in electronics history. On December 3rd in 2001, inventor Dean Kamen unveiled a product he had promised would revolutionize the transport industry. The Segway didn't end up revolutionizing much, but it was the source of some of the best gags in the 2009 Kevin James film, Paul Blart Mall Cop. You know, for something that's become a technological punchline, the Segway was actually a pretty fine bit of engineering. On December 2nd in 1982, Barney Clark became the first person to get a surgically implanted artificial heart. He lived with his electromechanical Jarvik 7 for another 112 days after his surgery. By the way, one of the first patents for an artificial heart was granted in 1963 to Paul Winchell. Now, you might not remember his name, but you almost certainly know his voice. Winchell was Tigger in Disney's first Winnie the Pooh cartoons, and he did a lot of other voice work. (laughs) Winchell got assistance developing his artificial heart from a fellow named Henry Heimlich. Yes, that Heimlich. The one from the Heimlich Maneuver. I swear, I love history. And finally, a few of you no doubt will recall these sounds. Of course you recognize Pong. Not the first video game, but definitely the first huge popular success in the video game industry. Atari introduced the original version, an arcade machine, on November 29th in 1972. Atari would make a tabletop version and eventually migrate Pong to its home game system, the first dominant game console. 
That's your weekly briefing for the week ending December 6th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. You can find a new episode every Friday on our website or via your favorite app for podcasts. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.